Welcome back, everybody. You listen to another episode of Drive Another Basket. I'm Mike. I hope you all are doing a great deal better today than the Pistons have been doing of late. Not going to mince words. We're really in the pits at this point. I mean, this is reaching like kind of 76ers process level. Uh, my buddy Jack Kelly pointed out a couple of days back that uh, the record of the Pistons versus the process Sixers, who are trying to be as bad as humanly possible, is not all that different except for in year four, which is where the Sixers started to actually make substantive progress, whereas the Pistons don't really seem to be at that point. And yes, the Sixers did take advantage of lottery rules that gave the highest odds by a significant margin to the worst team in the league. Uh, It was about 25%, or actually 25%, I believe, back then, versus the 14% it is now. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, I mean... It has been a long re- rebuild at this point, as I mentioned in the last episode. It's been almost four calendar years since that since this began, and of course that does include that incredibly long 2020 offseason, COVID offseason, where we didn't see the Pistons play between uh, March and December. Nonetheless, it has been a long time, and I know that there's a certain tendency to want to find somebody to blame. Is it Troy Weaver? Buck stops, of course, at Troy Weaver. And here's, I mean, I talked about Troy Weaver at length last week, but I want to talk a little bit more about it since ultimately in a rebuild, sometimes you just have bad luck. I don't think that's been the case with Weaver. The buck does stop at the general manager. And here's my philosophy on GMing in general, but certainly through a rebuild. It's not okay to basically, like if you want to build a contender, you have to be a genuinely good general manager. I think I said this last week, you have to actually make the good moves, the moves that other general managers don't, whether that's in the draft or elsewhere. And like you have to make what are, you know, I guess you can deem the S tier moves. I just realized I don't actually know what the S and S tier stands for, but it's above A tier, basically the highest tier, kind of a gaming term. And you look at how many S-tier moves has Troy Weaver really made. Uh, signing Jeremy Grant with nothing but cap space. That was a good move. Nobody thought that that was a good salary for Jeremy Grant. Turned out to be a good player. Trade him for, for Jalen Duren. You know, that is an, an absolutely S-tier series of events. You sign a guy with nothing but cap space and you get your prospective center of the future who's, I think, got a very bright future in the NBA. Beyond that, what has Troy Weaver really done that is going to really help in the future that was a move that another gm might not have made a, a really adroit move where he got something out of very little or found like an, an excellent untapped talent or or found somebody late in the draft who's going to turn out to be a real star player something like that often it isn't enough just to get these high picks they can be very very helpful but it's often just not going to be enough on its own unless you have the benefit of being like a, a high caliber free agent destination where you can just sign somebody with cap space who's going to who's going to come to your team. And as we've seen, free agency, of course, is getting weaker and weaker and weaker. It's kind of distressing. The Pistons are in uh, a situation. Excuse me. Pistons are in need of a, a power forward of the future. And let's say we look at free agency next season outside of OG Anunoby, who's going to be highly sought after because he's one of the best players in the market. Uh, three and D doesn't really describe it. He can shoot threes. He is an excellent defender. He can also do other things beyond just shooting threes. So if we go past him, probably the best power forward on the market is Torian Prince, which is a really sad thing to say. And that's basically what free agency is these days. 
you know, your good players take extensions. So if you look at Troy, I mean, Cade was the obvious pick. And then I'll never fault him for that, even if Cade doesn't work out. You look at Ivy. Ivy or Matherin or Sharp were really the only obvious picks there. And we'll see which one of those turns out well. But if Ivy turns out well, again, I mean, I think all three of those guys have a good shot at turning out well. Maybe Ivy is the best of the three. I hope so. Uh, I don't think that... I think that Asar, uh, after the information on Cam Whitmore came out uh, about a combination of his poor workouts in which... You know, presumably, I don't know if they, they got this far, but there were major questions about his basketball IQ and Villanova. I got to think that those were confirmed. His team certainly would have been testing for that. Also that he was disengaged. There were medical concerns and he, he dropped out of the lottery. I think once that happened, Asar was really the only realistic pick. Taylor Hendricks, I think just the ceiling, wasn't, just the ceiling wasn't there. And this team wasn't going to pick based on floor. As much as he might have just been a good fit with the team's other principles, I think this team was still going to pick on ceiling. And that made perfect sense. You know, beyond that, whom were the Pistons going to pick? Anthony Black wasn't getting drafted onto a team with uh, with Cade and with uh, with Ivy already. So it came down probably to Jarris Walker versus Asara. And Asara is just more desirable than Jarris Walker in every way beyond being a bad three-point shooter, whereas Jarris Walker is merely really shaky. Uh, Asara is a versatile wing as opposed to a big. He is more athletic in every way. He is probably a better passer. He does not have Jairus Walker's severe aversion to contact. And basically also Walker was, you know, his calling card was supposedly defense, yet he's weak on switch defense against guards. That's a pretty darned big gap. So I think Hassar was really the only plausible pick at number five for this team. Uh, basically what I'm saying is that how much credit do you really give to Troy for making the picks that he has picked in the top five? You know, beyond that, he's had... Second round picks, you know, his, he hasn't really showed too much regard for second round picks, both in trades and in uh, and in the draft itself. You know, who knows? Maybe Sasser will end up being a good player, but I think even there, kind of complimentary player. And like I said in, in last episode, the 2020 draft is, I, I never thought it, I would start to feel that way about the 2020 draft. And rather, I just never considered it. The 2020 draft may turn out to be one that really, 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 really hurts. Because Weaver had access to some real good talent there. Some real good talents that, I mean, nobody uh, until maybe last year or maybe this year even, seeing how well Tyrese Maxey is doing. Last year was the emergence of Jade McDaniels. is one of the, he's not a foundational guy, but one of the elite 3 and D players in the league. But now you've got Halliburton, who's arguably a top five point guard. Maxey, who's arguably a top five point guard. Bain, again, is, is averaging, I think, 25 points per game, or at least he was last I checked. Even quickly is is becoming one of the one of the league's stronger bench players. But uh, Weaver had access to some elite talent, particularly those two point guards. And it's very, very nice. <laughs> you know, basically, completely blowing a draft is, is not a good thing at the beginning of a rebuild, especially when you sort of expend some significant assets on it. Kennard did not fit the timeline. It was good to trade the guy. They traded four second-round picks along with him because of concerns over his health. That's a fairly significant haul, especially because I believe three of them came from the Pistons and, uh, you know, were likely to be, you know, fairly good second-round picks. And you traded that future, excuse me, future first for Stewart, which is going to, which is right now tying up the picks and is going to either convey and maybe at a bad time, you know, because the protections gradually go down or you have the situation in which it doesn't convey, which is that the Pistons are so bad until 2027 that it just, uh, you know, it turns into two second round picks instead. So Stewart, I really like, he is a relatively low ceiling role player, however, a bench big. Bay, you know, even in the moment, 
these guys were both safe picks. Bay, it's kind of painful right now when you look at James Wiseman and how horrible he is at, at NBA basketball. Um, you know, I was I was speaking with somebody today who brought up that he might just be one of those one of these guys who had a lot of natural talent at basketball. You know, who had uh, you know an ideal body for basketball uh, and basically decided to play the sport. Darko was actually this way. He said uh, that he didn't really want to play basketball. He was just good at it. You had another guy in uh, in hockey. This very hotly anticipated guy named Alexander Daig. I think I'm mispronouncing his first name a little bit, but he was kind of touted as the next one, so to speak. He was picked ahead of, you know, one pick ahead of Chris Pronger and also made this quip on draft day saying, I'm glad I got picked first because nobody remembers number two. All right. Well, it turned out that Daig, despite having a lot of talent, never really actually was too interested in hockey. He didn't turn out to be good. Chris Pronger, one of the best defensemen of his generation. So is Wiseman that kind of guy who just you know, played because he was good at it, but doesn't really want to put the work in. He certainly doesn't want to put the work. It doesn't look like he wants to put the work in on the court. And either he has just a, a real fixation on, on doing what he wants to do and not playing winning basketball, or he just doesn't have the mind for it. Right now, it's looking really bad. Sadiq had his issues. I'm not sure exactly what made the, the trade necessary, you know, to go on that quickly. But basically, Weaver took an already unimpressive draft and downgraded on one of the players in it. That's great. And then Killian Hayes, of course, is really, as says for the entirety of his rookie contract so far, and granted he missed a lot of his rookie year, but the last two seasons he's gotten big minutes, this season he's gotten big minutes, and he is still one of the worst players in the league. So <clears throat> I don't mean for this to be a rant. It's just basically, like, we got this open letter of the fans from Weaver last season, you know, last offseason, asking for patience, you know, saying that he knows the fans are waiting, and it's true, the fans are waiting. We've now, start, we've now started another, you know, a fourth season that's really... This season has gone absolutely horribly so far. The Pistons are a laughing stock. And so, like, yeah, we are missing players. You know, not having Boyan hurts. Not having, uh, you know, missing Alec Burks for a little while hurts. Um, Isaiah Livers, who knows. But uh, Monte Morrison, we found out today that he's probably going to be out an additional six to eight weeks. That one hurts because it would have been really nice to have his steady ball handling in the rotation. Um, That was my first... Uh, my first reaction upon seeing that news, my second reaction, and I hate that this is the case, was, uh, goodness, we're just going to continue to be subjected to Killian Hayes, who, I mean, two seasons ago, it made sense that he was playing big minutes. Like, he started because they wanted, for the first half of the season, because they wanted to see if he and Kay could play together. You know, their their number one overall pick and their, you know, number seven pick the year before, who had missed most of the season. Okay, fine. I didn't think that had even the slightest possibility of succeeding because they both play on the ball and they would be the least athletic starting front backcourt in the league, and that matters. They gave it a shot. Killian, I mean, the, the fit with Cade wasn't the issue. The issue was that he was absolutely terrible. So he went to the bench, and he continued to be absolutely terrible, though it was against lesser opposition. Then he was going to be a bench player last season. Cade got injured, so Killian took on a major role again. And aside from a six-week span in which you know he was a lot better, albeit very, very inconsistent even then, uh, he was terrible again. He started the season, and he's uh, kind of noticeably better in some ways. And But he was starting for such a low point that he's still a terrible NBA player. And, I mean, we've hit that point of the rebuild, or at least I have, in which it's like you get it the first season. It's funny. You're rooting for losses. Embrace the tank. Awesome. Cool. You know, but we're finally doing what, uh, you know, what, what's, you know, the team is finally doing what's good for it. And, all right, you get the number one overall pick. That was an awesome moment. You get to the second season. You're expecting things to go a little bit better. They don't. The team's bad again. Okay, that's fine. At least they give us a stretch of good basketball after the trade deadline, or after the all-star break, rather. And you go in, you get another pretty high pick, 
And, you know, sure, you trade Grant for Duran, and that's a bit of a, a downgrade in the starting lineup. And it's worth noting with Kate Cunningham that the best starting lineup he has played with to date has been himself, Corey Joseph, obviously himself. The best players in the starting lineup he's played with to date are Corey Joseph, Jeremy Grant, Sadiq Bey, and Isaiah Stewart. In terms of spacing and overall effective basketball, that is the best lineup he's played with to date. Best starting lineup, excuse me, which is a problem. Though last season, he would have played with a better lineup if he'd been healthy. Well, to a degree. Uh, whatever the case, it's kind of irrelevant because he's starting this season in an absolutely hideous lineup, uh, at, largely at the hands of his uh, his head coach, deliberately self-inflicting this wound for reasons that he hasn't really gone over. And I'll, I'll cover that. I'll talk about that a bit later. But anyway, you get to year three. Cade Cunningham goes down. He's out for almost the entire season. The team is terrible again. Um, I mean, you get to that sort of third season. It's like, okay, whatever is going to happen, there, there should be some measurable progress in this season. Ends up being a 17-win season. Again, like the last three seasons, the Pistons are really tanking down the stretch, and that's part of it. But last season was the worst product, the Pistons. In season three of the rebuild, well, season three and a half, if you want to count the second half of, uh, of the truncated uh, you know, COVID season where the Pistons went full tank uh, from, you know, they, they started at, uh, at the end of December, beginning of January, and then really went full, full tank, uh, starting maybe from oh, the trade deadline, really, where they uh, traded away a, a certain player I don't like to talk about. So, yeah, you get to year three, and you have an absolutely horrific season, terrible season. Like, I think you win four games in the second half of the season. And it's like, okay, um, all right, well, this is highly unfortunate. Pistons get another high pick. Unfortunately, they get terrible luck in the lottery. You know, you come away with the SAR, and the SAR is great, but you really would have wanted to be number one in that lottery for obvious reasons. So that's a, a punch to the gut. And then you get to season four, and it's like, okay, Cade's back. You know, Ivy's going into his second season, and Duran's going into his second season. You know, presumably you got players who are going to make steps. You got a coach who is you know, ostensibly going to be significantly better than Dwayne Casey. And you come in and the Pistons win two out of, I think they're two and 13 now. And it's tiring. Like it's, it's tiring. I mean, I don't want to speak for other people. It seems that a lot of people are tired of it. The losses get fatiguing and more than the losses, it's the Pistons not only losing, but lose, but you know, losing. I mean, not all the games have been blowouts, but they've won two games so far this season. And those were both against really just opponents who are messes at the time. So you're in year four here and they're starting out playing terrible basketball. And for my part, I'm finally getting tired of watching bad basketball. I mean, it was, or, you know, the Pistons losing basketball games and in this event, just also continuing in many cases to play terrible basketball in the process. And that's when it comes down to Killian Hayes. I mean, he was just kind of like a necessary evil the last two years, like the second season, you know, his second season of the NBA, you, you're going to get him those minutes, period. And it was ugly. The last season, he was also super ugly. And then this season, he's still super ugly. And it starts to it started to wear on me because it's bad basketball. And you're in season four here. And it's bad basketball. And I know I've said that this team will be significantly better. I think when the veterans return, though, Monte Morris is not going to be back for another two months, if that. I mean, a, a player, not a physical therapist, but you look back, a player getting PRP is not a good sign. But, I mean, I could be completely wrong about that, but it's going to be a couple months until he's back. I mean, Troy Weaver, that was a good move for Morris, in my opinion. I mean, who knows? Maybe they just didn't give the, give the guy a physical. I have no idea. And, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of angst at, at the, the team's medical staff at this point. And uh, I have no idea if that's justified or not, but <laughs> I, I get that. 
the anger toward them is growing because things just don't seem to go too well for the Pistons on the injury front. But again, I'm not behind the scenes there. I don't know what's happening. Though certainly the decision to play Duran, who was, you know, very good those first three games and then fell off a cliff after he hurt his ankle and played a lot worse until they finally shut him down again to give him time to heal. That doesn't seem like that really didn't seem like an ideal situation. But again, I'm not behind the scenes with the medical team. But it is worth noting that in the offseason, Troy Weaver, his first move was to take on Joe Harris, who was washed. I mean, Joe Harris, you could see it last season, was never the, the quickest player, had moved up ultimately from shooting guard to power forward, uh, and then had, I believe, multiple ankle surgeries that you could see it last year had destroyed what was already not great mobility. And it's just he can't play in the NBA anymore. We've seen it. I'd be shocked if he got back to a point where he had the mobility to be a non-enormous minus in the floor. He just can't be that slow on the perimeter. He can barely be that slow as a center and, and still play in the NBA. So his first as his, his first move was to eat up $20 million in cap space by taking on Joe Harris. Could have waited, for example, and, and taken on the likes of uh, Chetty Osman, who's right now shooting for another awful team. But he's younger, and he can shoot the ball, and he's mobile, and he can shoot the ball. And Joe Harris can shoot the ball too, but is not mobile. <laughs> and Chetty Osman came with uh, with a significantly lesser cap hit. And who knows what, what else you could have used uh, that cap space on. But, and again, Monte Morris, I think, unless they were just completely negligent at looking at uh, where his health was at the time, I think he was a good move. He was one of the better backup point guards in the league, and the, the cost wasn't, uh, wasn't really substantial. But, uh, I mean, at, at this point, it... Looks like it kind of hurts that the Pistons took on Joe Harris and his $20 million for two first round, two second round picks. I think only one of which was actually a respectable one, though don't quote me on that, whatever the case. It's it's hurting right now, certainly, just in terms of the depth of this team. So I suppose it's where you find the balance between, you know, what what does Troy Weaver, you know, has has he done a job that is re- was reasonable given the circumstances and things certain things just haven't worked out in his favor? Uh, has he kind of done a so-so job, which I think is the case, is middling. And, and in the end of things, you know, in the larger picture, do you just look at the GM and say, it's your job to deliver success to this team? And you haven't, and we're in year four, and we're being subjected to an absolutely terrible product. I mean, I think that's the question. And I don't blame anybody at all for beginning to grow extremely impatient with this GM who was hired to provide results and has not done so, while a bunch of other teams in the league, not all of whom were the thunder and started with amazing assets, have done significantly better. And that moves us on to Monty Williams. Now, this I will say about Troy Weaver, uh, by all accounts and all indications, the coaching search, basically, uh, Tom Gores, who has always been willing to spend on this team and has always wanted the team to win and has at times, you know, was for many years an enormous detriment to this team's success by his habit of meddling in areas that were that he really should have left to the professionals, though he also should have hired better professionals. I think he didn't. I mean, he inherited Dumars, but he, he let Dumars limp along as the worst GM in the league for several years before he fired him. And then he brought on uh, he who shall not be named, who was woefully unfit for the job. And he, he got that guy by offering him personnel control. Um, and that's been one of the big one if, what ifs, excuse me, of the NBA over the last decade, because otherwise he would have been the coach for the Golden State Warriors instead. So uh, whatever the case, it took him until, I mean, Ed Stefanski was the real first, excuse me, the first real honest to goodness basket, long-term basketball professional he had employed. Ed Stefanski also was incredibly mediocre. He <laughs> had just like a, a, an 
like you can't possibly get more mediocre than this guy in terms of his management history. And also, it was one of these hilarious, it was a hilarious situation because Stefanski was hired as a consultant to help find a new GM and, uh, and a new coach and ended up getting himself hired above the GM. You know, that's, uh, that's pretty successful, you know, successful finessing there, coming in as a consultant to help find uh, a new GM and getting himself hired for, you know, to oversee the GM more or less. But I think he finally got through to Goras uh, about the fact that we can't continue making win now moves. You know, this is this is not going to work. We're just fighting for the seventh or the eighth seed every year, and it's just not going to work. We don't have a future doing what we're doing. I think the other part of that was uh, the Pistons making a trade for a star player. It was Blake Griffin. You remember, I'm sure a lot of you remember uh, Blake's first game and Tom Gora's going out uh, like completely and utterly blitzed, like absolutely hammered and uh, incredibly happy after the Pistons won that first game against the G League Grizzlies team. And I think that that seeing that trade completely fall flat in his face and realizing that even Blake, when he was at his best in that uh, in that 2018-2019 season, was not enough to make the Pistons a good team. I think that was part of it, too. Uh, whatever the case, uh, he decided to insert himself into the coaching search. There were three candidates whom the Pistons were uh, reportedly looking at, Charles Lee, Kevin Ollie, and, uh, oh, goodness, Jaron Collins, I believe. And suddenly we heard that Monty Williams was on the table and Tom Gores was offering him progressively larger amounts of money to, to become the coach of the Pistons. Uh, will that turn out to have been the right move? Uh, we will see. But that's not Troy Weaver's fault. If it doesn't work out, that's not Troy Weaver's fault. That is an owner deciding that he should get back in and start meddling again. And owners should not meddle in that capacity. I don't think that there's a single owner in the league over the last decade who has actually done his team good by meddling. I mean, we'll see if Matt Ishbia sees success from it. Mark Cuban, I mean, he had his role, sure, in the in the Mavericks putting together a contending roster, and then he spent the next several years screwing it up, you know, deciding to break up that roster for the sake of cap flexibility to do what? And, and basically waste the last uh, the last few years of, of Dirk Nowitzki's career, the last few years of Dirk Nowitzki's prime, rather. So uh, moving on to Monty Williams, I mean, it's been a tough situation. So as I've said before, I think that Monty is a solid coach, can even be a good coach when he has a lot of talent on his team. So far, he's been incredibly frustrating for me. He, I've spoken about this again. I'm just very conscious of trying not to repeat myself because um, I just don't think that's enjoyable to listen to. But he's just, I mean, chiefly in his starting lineups, but also in what seems to have been kind of like a, a pointless uh, whatever it is with Jaden Ivey and, and, and whatever. It's the lineups he's running in particular, complete self-inflicted wounds like this. I will repeat myself on NBA teams. Try not to have a single non-shooting perimeter player in the entire rotation because it's because they do such bad things in spacing. Monty Williams. Okay. You probably at the beginning of the season with the injuries, you have to want, run at least one of these guys in, in the starting lineup. And it's a Sarah Thompson. Ultimately, we hear that it would have been Boyan starting otherwise. Um, which begs the question, if Monty Morris was healthy, maybe you have him in a starting lineup, and that's a starting lineup with good spacing. So you have to start one of these guys. And okay, Asar, fine. Um, you know, you play another shooter, Alec Burks from day one. Uh, that's the obvious choice. You know, you still, you're going to have issues with spacing from this one guy. Uh, and I mean, I'm, I'm sure you can all just, you know, have a look at, at what other what the teams the Pistons are playing against who are playing five spacers, the, the amount of space they are, they are able to generate compared to the Pistons. And also the number of perimeter opportunities they're able to generate versus and not just generate, actually hit versus the Pistons, especially in that starting lineup. So start Alec Burks, fine, go for it, great, awesome. You know, it's not ideal, 
but at least Alec Burks is a, is a really strong catch-and-shoot guy. He's a motion shooter. He can actually do some creation of his own as well. Um, but instead, you decide to take that you know one non-shooter in the starting lineup, who is a problem for any team, and double that number, which does not mean double the problems. It probably means triple the problems. You know, why are you doing that? What sort of point are you trying to make? Why are you putting together a starting lineup and fielding it from minute one that is guaranteed to fail? Not only guaranteed to fail, also you have your franchise player and it's going to make his life immeasurably more difficult. Why are you doing that? Well, here's the thing with Monty Williams. We don't know why he did that. He's not an idiot. I'm sure he knew what was going to happen. But Monty is not only doing things, has not only done things that are completely self-inflicted wounds, he is incredibly um, obtuse with, uh, with the media. So he's doing these things that make no sense and contribute to losing. And he basically speaks through the media to the fans in a way that is just incredibly disingenuous and more or less intelligence insulting, saying, oh man, well, Cade's just getting swarmed on his way into the interior. It's like, okay, great. You're playing him with two non-shooters in the starting lineup. What do you think is going to happen? Oh, okay, well, we need to get Cade more spacing, you know, play some lineups with more spacing. And it's like, okay, well, you move Stewart to center. That's in part, I have to imagine because Marvin Bagley is ill. You know, Marvin would play significantly less minutes in that game and then leave partway through the fourth quarter. But who knows? Maybe that, was, maybe that wouldn't have been the plan either way. And uh, then you still start two non-shooters next to Cade. Cool. Um, that is the opposite of, of emphasizing spacing. That is literal self-destruction in terms of spacing. I don't care that you're not playing them as many minutes together. I don't care that you're, you know, you're uh, you know, going to try to play Cade in other lineups that have more spacing. Why are you doing that? It doesn't make any sense. It's going to help you lose games. It is a starting lineup that is pretty much 100% guaranteed to fall flat in its face. Again, I, I explained that in the last episode. I'm not going to get into that. But it's super frustrating. It's super frustrating for Pistons, especially for Pistons fans who have seen a great deal of frustration already over the last three seasons. It's like now we have this new coach who is you know, supposed to be significantly better, and he's doing stupid stuff that's helping them lose games, and there's absolutely no explanation as to why it's happening. And then we have other things about his coaching. Like, uh, for example, and, and this really struck me last night, I've spoken a lot about one of the things I really didn't like about Dwayne Casey was how he chronically allowed the offense to slip out of his hands down the stretch of close games and just evolve into garbage. Well, Monty Williams has done that now multiple times in the season against the Nuggets. And this was a Nuggets team without Jamal Murray and without Nikola Jokic. That is almost certainly a non-playoff team. I mean, Jokic was out in the first half. Pistons had the second half to make things work. They didn't win. I mean, say what you will about if it, if it even should have been a close game, but it came down to the end, and uh, what happened? I mean, it was just Kate attacking, Kate attacking, Kate attacking, and it worked in some situations, but Jaden Ivey, who had been having a good night, got completely frozen out of the offense. We had the abomination of, like, in a critical possession, or an important possession, when the game is very close down the stretch of having Asar Thompson post up. You know, no offense to Asar, that is not offense you should be attempting in a, in a critical situation. I mean, that is a very low percentage shot. And then you get to the final play, and again, it's like, oh, well, why should we bother calling a timeout in critical possession? I know that there are, there are some schools of thought where it's like, okay, you don't want the defense to get set, but I think it's the third time it's happened now. Or maybe the, I remember maybe one or two other times he just called a really terrible play out of timeout in the final play, also reminiscent of Casey. So that's just, I mean, I don't think that any conclusions should be drawn about Monty at this point, but it's slightly scary stuff that's also just incredibly frustrating. And again, frustrating is frustrating, but Pistons fans have had a surfeit of frustration. We've had far too much frustration over the last four seasons. And, you know, if you were watching even, you know, before the, re uh, the rebuild began, you know, you got to be frustrated for many seasons before that as well. 
Um, but one thing that is true about Monty is that I wish he had not come about as the coach of this team because the owner, who has a history of incredibly damaging meddling with the operations of the team, decided to step in again. You know, that's that does give me pause just in terms of making me feel a certain amount of unease. So, yeah, this is what it comes back to. I mean, there's, just, there's been a lot that has gone on early in the season that has not really been, I mean, it's two things. Number one, it's just more losing for, for a fan base, or at least for me. I'm, I'm just, it's very, I'm sure for all of us, it's extremely tiring. You know, for those of us who are, who are fans of this team and, uh, you know, are very dedicated fans of this team, and it's very, very difficult to be dedicated fans of this team, and it's in year four, and this team is starting out 2-13. and 13. And, and, and just the coach is doing dumb stuff and the injuries are there. But, you know, what, what do you want to say? That's that even with the injuries, this should not be a two and 13 team. It's, it's tough. It's just real tough. So that's some, uh, what a bit of another potpourri of, uh, of topics. And, you know, I, I hope that you found that enjoyable segment. Maybe, maybe it resonated with you a little bit at least, you know, like like I said last episode, it's it's fine to be frustrated. I mean, don't feel don't feel bad about being frustrated. I mean, nobody should feel bad about feeling frustrated about sports. Period. I mean, sports are what you make of them as a fan. But this has been tough. This has been tough. And whatever reasons people, you know, whatever reasons um, there are, whatever extenuating circumstances, and there are some, you know, are those extenuating circumstances enough to justify us receiving this product in year four of a rebuild, where by the end of the season, um, you know, whatever happens. The, Pist- the Pistons fans have been will have been watching a, a rebuild for four and a half years. So anyway, back to what I was saying. Other stuff. So uh, Cade Cunningham had uh, a pretty darn good game last night. His first, I would say, like outright indisputable good game on offense. Uh, he was hitting more of his shots, but uh, also in uh, a fun development, he was actually getting to the free throw line. How I think he was getting to the free throw line is that instead of driving to the side, where it's a lot harder to get your fouls, foul calls when you're trying to score from one side or the other of the basket, he saw, and obviously I'm not making a, a, a close comparison between Kate and these players, but you see some very, very good scorers like uh, MVP era Derek Rose or Kyrie Irving, who despite being whatever you want to think about Kyrie Irving, is one of the greatest um, ball handlers in the sense of you know, his dribble moves and just his ability to get past people. One of the best, maybe the best in the history of the NBA. These guys don't really get too many free throws because generally, um, you know, in, in the case of Derrick Rose and, and Kyrie, they're just not really defenders near them or they're not trying to when, when they're scoring that MVP era Rose because he was incredibly explosive and then Kyrie for, you know, being incredibly shifty. Um, in Kate's case, I mean, obviously he doesn't have those assets, but, you know, he's generally trying to score from from the side, from a couple feet away from the basket, uh, not fading, but running parallel to the basket. And that's harder to get your calls there, like significantly harder to get your calls there. And last night, Gabe was doing something different. He was going right up the gut. And it's a lot easier to get your calls there, you know, especially if the defense is throwing multiple defenders at you and you're running into them. That's a call that the refs will give you a lot more. And that was one of the things I was excited about for Cade in terms of uh, putting on more muscle and more strength was just the ability to go up the middle and to take some hits and still be able to continue on to the basket, continue on, you know, it just into the midst of the defenders. And that makes it a ton easier to get calls. So Cade last night was either going up the middle uh, or coming in parallel to the basket, but then curving in and slowing down. And if you slow down and you're driving into a defender and then elevating again, you're going to get a lot more in the way of calls. So that was great. And that's something that he needs to continue doing. 
but that's going to be real big for his efficiency, and he already draws a ton of gravity. Hopefully he'll draw a little bit less gravity when people actually have to pay attention to his teammates. But, you know, if, if Cade's on his way to the basket, he's going to, you know, even just for the threat of his mid-range, which is still quite good when, I mean, he's struggled at times this season, of course, but, you know, he's going to draw multiple coverage on the way in. And if he can draw those fouls, awesome. You know, that's, that's really important. It's going to be, you know, great in a whole variety of ways. You know, his efficiency is one of those. Uh, just a, a considerably lower turnover game yesterday, too. You know, was was making the the sort of kind of cross courts and and just you know had really high vision. Some of the, the some of the high vision passes that we saw from him in his rookie year. Like I've mentioned, like the Cade we've seen so far this season as a passer and as a decision maker is not who he was uh, as a rookie. That's something I think we could reasonably expect to not last. His injury was to his lower leg, not to his head. Even a head injury, of course, unless it's you know bad enough to knock you out of basketball, isn't going to take away your your acuity as a playmaker, obviously. So basically, just really good to see. We also got to see Cade and Ivy uh, finally play significant minutes together in the starting lineup, and and that was fun too. Cade and Ivy are you know to and I didn't come up with this term, but I like it uh, the kind of fire and ice thing where Cade is the is the slower operator. And another thing about Cade, he's been doing more of what he did in his rookie year, which is coming you know out of the high pick and roll and kind of slowing down and and that hunched over movement while he surveys the field, which he's very very good at doing, and either you know in makes a good decision again i'm not sure why it's taken him some time to get back to this though being off for almost an entire season can have helped uh, but kate's kind of the slow operator who's going to really approach the game from a very uh, cerebral place and uh and, and be very methodical and meanwhile ivy is the guy who is just going to operate uh at the speed of his elite athleticism and, and just kind of be more of a slasher and a fast mover and uh, that, that's a dynamic that I think could uh, could play off very well. And uh, it was some some good chemistry last night. I mean, the whole idea for me of the cooperation between Cade and Ivy was something along the lines of, you know, Cade goes into the high pick and roll and draws his, uh, you know, his usual two defenders, you know, helps to, you know, break down the defense that way. And then you can pass to Ivy, who will jet into the interior through open lanes through uh, you know take advantage of some of the coverage that Kate has drawn uh, that has unhinged the defense a bit and either score at the basket uh, or just unhinge the the defense more and create that cascade effect that every defense tries to create where the just excuse me every offense tries to create where just the defense sort of falls apart and you kick it out to an open shooter and maybe he'll kick it out to another open shooter who might drive in and kick it out to another open shooter and you ultimately get yourself a high percentage opportunity for one of your, you know, for one of your best shooters or at the basket. And, you know, we saw some glimpses of their ability to work off of each other. And Ivy has just brought, you know, since he's been back, has just brought such a different, you know, such a, an additional dimension of the team. I mean, part of it is that this team was just utterly lacking any sort of elite driver, really, in the, in the, uh, in the rotation in general, any sort of elite athlete. And Ivy, though, he's not the, uh, the greatest leaper. You know, he's he's more of just kind of like an above average leaper, and he op- he doesn't really operate super vertically like uh like you know the likes of John Morant or whoever else. Um, is still in terms of his ability to accelerate, uh, one of the you know one of the uh, the most explosive players in the league. Uh, he just adds uh, such a, a dimension to the Pistons' offense that they don't have otherwise. So and and also is fun to watch, of course. And you know he's looked considerably better. Well, Toronto, I didn't mention the Toronto game. That was. Just, I think, a low point for everybody. That was just terrible. But in the game against Denver, he's looked a lot better. Um, the game uh, before that against Cleveland, you know, also had some good plays. 
and it's it's just been good to have him back. I'll put it that way. Um, just tracking more about Asar Thompson. Asar is just kind of like a joy to watch on defense. He's got you know far higher. I mean, I, I knew he was going to come in as a strong defender who just needed a good three point shot in order to to be a strong starter for for any team. But some of the things that he can do on defense are just really remarkable. It's not just his athleticism, and I mean this guy can can recover and close out and a player from like eight feet away before the guy has had the opportunity to uh, to attempt a shot. Uh, or just come flying out of nowhere from the weak side or go up against guys. And I, I think Asar has plenty of space to add strength onto his frame, but can still go up against guys like Siakam and, and do a pretty good job. Guys significantly stronger than he is. Uh, just his, his versatility. This is combination of very high defensive IQ, remarkable body control, high athleticism, and, and work ethic uh, are just, I mean, it's really something else. And, and you know, as a passer... You know, also pretty gifted as a scorer right now. I mean, Asar was coming into the league as such a raw half-court scorer. And it saddens me, saddens me to say this, but, I mean, it doesn't surprise me, and it's fine. The guy's a rookie, and, you know, he's uh, he's got a lot of developing to do as a scorer. But, you know, he's still a pretty significant negative for the Pistons just because his offense is, is so rough. And, you know, your skill on offense is going to manifest significantly stronger than skill on defense, um, unfortunately, just because of how the game is played and how the rules are right now. I kind of liken it to... You know, giving a car a full tank of gas and then saying, well, let's see what kind of mileage you get. You know, I want you to drive as far as you can. And, uh, you know, on whichever course, you know, we're just looking for you to get the most mileage. And, you know, one of one of the courses is on a highway. The other one is off-roading through the hills. Obviously, you're going to get more mileage on uh, on the highway and kind of see like the highway is offense. And, uh, and the rocky, you know, the, the, the hilly off-road is defense. It's just the same amount of juice is going to get you further on offense. It's going to hurt more. It's going to help more, I'll put it this way, if you're a lead on offense versus if you're a lead on defense. But a lead on defense is still quite helpful. You still have to have a strong defense. Just my point is that at this point, as well as Asar is playing outside of scoring, uh, he's still pretty significant significant negative uh, on the court in general. But again, it's fine. He's young. You know, there's a lot to be excited about. You just have a very, very long way to go in terms of, you know, developing a reliable jump shot. Uh, and I think that's unlikely to happen until, you know, hopefully the off season. Um, I mean, hopefully not in the sense that I hope it takes until then, but it's just, it's very unusual for a rookie to make that much progress uh, on his shot in the midst of his first season. You know, we, we certainly know that he's putting in the work right now and we'll put in all the work that he can, you know, everything we've, we've heard about Asar is that he has a fantastic work ethic. And, uh, let's see what else I think I've, I've gotten to most of what I want to get to. Um, there's, there's been some discussion about, you know, should the Pistons try to make a big splash right now? Zach Levine for, you know, for example, and here's what I'll say about Zach Levine though. I I don't think it's likely at all that the organization will, will make a a trade just to improve this team non-meaningfully in the moment. What I mean by non-meaningfully is it's not like Zach Levine is going to take this team to the next level. You know, you, you don't make a, in my opinion, don't make a win now trade for a team that's really struggling. You know, that, that's pretty low in the standings. Uh, that's that's just, in my opinion, not a good time. I mean, you get a better product, but what is that really getting you? You know, if you're a bad team, then, you know, if you're a truly bad team, then you belong high in the lottery and you, you get that pick. You don't, you get that high pick. You don't give up future assets. It might be better used at a, at a better time, but basically you're just elevating yourself from, from pretty poor to maybe mediocre, which was certainly the case with the Blake Griffin trade, which was almost five years ago, which uh, feels a little bit crazy. Or wait, that was almost six years ago. Was that uh, that happened? I believe on the thirtieth of January in uh, in twenty eighteen. Yikes! So I don't think the organization should do that, nor should they. About Zach Levine himself, 
I think that as a scorer, you know, assuming that what's going on this season is just a blip because he started off very slow. Uh, he's everything really the Pistons, you know, could look for. He's not as strong at attacking the rim as he used to be, but he's still fully capable of doing that. Uh, he's just an excellent three-point shooter from, you know, from, uh, you know, standing position uh, and, and as a motion shooter. He is, is a vertical spacer and, you know, he's a decent passer. He didn't pass at all in the, in the, the you know, the 50-point game he put up against the Pistons, but he's a guy you can depend on to, uh, to average, uh, you know, maybe about five assists per game. Um, unfortunately, he is also a player who is quite poor on defense, who is, you know, in, in his late 20s, which is not so much of an issue, but he has an injury history. You know, he's he's a little bit brittle. And also, you know, in terms of, I don't know if the word, I've never really liked the word culture fit, but the guy just doesn't strike me as a good teammate. And from, you know, from what we've heard as well, not really a malcontent, not really a, you know, malignant in the locker room, but, uh, yeah, I just I wouldn't really want to bring that into the locker room, but I think it's kind of a moot point because it's just not the right time for the Pistons to do anything. You know, though though I understand the you know the sentiment like we just want to see a better product. You know, is it really worth making a, a trade at at a point at which it doesn't really benefit the Pistons to do so just to make this like a the thirty win team this season? Uh, I I think that the answer is no, personally. And finally, going to end the episode by covering some listener-submitted topics. Thanks to those of you who put in the ideas. Appreciate it. Uh, number one, how much does this team miss Corey Joseph right now? Uh, asked, no doubt, because Corey Joseph was a bit of a controversial presence on the team over uh, the last two seasons. And, you know, I always liked Corey. He, you know, did like a half, half-decent job when he was asked to step up, even into the starting lineup as uh well, I don't know, as a point guard, whatever, whatever you want to say. Um, he did his job. He did nothing more, nothing less than his job. He always worked hard. He was a leader in the locker room. His teammates loved him. Uh, he was just very, very much a team-first guy. And, uh, you know, does this team miss the Corey Joseph of today? No. I mean, by all indications, Corey Joseph has is definitely passed over the hill, so to speak. But the Corey Joseph of two seasons ago, that might not be the worst thing in the world right now. You know, as a guy who, you know, if they really want to handle her next to Cade, you know, handler of any sort. Corey Joseph was safe with the ball. He could do some passing. He could do some driving. And he could space the floor at a good percentage. And when you think about it, I mean, with Monte Morris out, like, you know, if Corey, if Corey Joseph of two years ago was on the team, uh, you know, you could have started him instead of Killian, you know, in those uh, those first, what was it, 12 games. And uh, you maybe would have been significantly better off. So, you know, if we could... Uh, you know, use a time machine and pull like, uh, you know, 2021 Corey Joseph out of it. You know, I'd, I'd be down for that at this point, at least until Monte Morris is back. Um, partly because the team just doesn't really have any, you know, outside of Cade and, you know, if you want to say Ivy, who I do, I think definitely showed some chops as a passer last season. You know, even as a rookie, he has to step into a primary handler role. Um, uh, you know, aside from those two, uh, who do you really have? And the answer is Killian, who is a largely ineffectual handler. Very safe with the ball. Uh, completely, I mean, uh, like, I don't want to say kudos, but it's definitely a noticeable difference that he is willing to actually drive into contact now, but he is still virtually hopeless at reaching the rim. He's virtually hopeless at getting anywhere near the rim. He is no threat at all to break down defenses. You know, he does all of his passing from the perimeter, you know, from a stationary position on the perimeter and off the short drive with no defenders near him. And yeah, it's still helpful to have that passing, but he's not attracting help. He's not breaking down defenses. Defenses leave him open the perimeter. Defenses treat him like a joke on the drive. He's more of just a passer than an actual 
honest to goodness handler. And Corey Joseph, though, he was most certainly backup quality. And in the times when uh, when he was starting, is significantly better than or was significantly better than that. So hey, you know, if we could just go to that time machine and we had the option to pull Corey Joseph out of it, you know, sign me up. It's uh, definitely better than what we have with Killian right now. You know, subject to change, but uh, you know, after a point, you really start to doubt that Killian can really make a leap as a handler. I think uh, we're kind of reaching the point at which it's time to stop hoping that he can, you know, for whatever hope is left, that he can uh, randomly become able to, or just really abruptly and, uh, you know, very shockingly become adequate enough on the drive that he's like a real honest-to-goodness playmaker. This is the thing about Kalian, and uh, I know I've said this, that, I know I've said this before, rather, so I'm repeating myself, but on a good team, you don't put the ball in his hands because he's going to do less with it than the average player. He does nothing to, to wrong-foot defenses. And like the vast majority of, of lead handlers out there can do that. Like the vast, vast, vast majority. Um, second one, uh, how, you know, talk about how Jalen Duran contributes to winning or rather the impact Jalen Duran has on winning. Uh, so I'd say that's both relative and absolute relative in the context that he's drastically better as a starting center than anybody else on the team. Like this team really has four centers. Uh, when you, you know, if, you, if you're of the opinion and, you know, I feel pretty strongly about this personally, that's that Isaiah Stewart is, is a bench big, a bench center in particular, and, and not really all that good as power forward. I think he is, you know, as I've said, aside from um, Xavier Tillman, who really shouldn't be starting on any team, and Obi Toppin, who is, both of whom, both of these guys, Toppin and, and Tillman are, you know, they're, they're starters in name only. They come in and they play in the low 20s. I mean, Isaiah, whatever you want to say, is, is one of the worst starting point guards. Just starting point guards. Uh, starting power forwards in the league. Definitely not a point guard. Um, unfortunately, Isaiah isn't the best at handling the ball. So, four centers between Bagley, whom I think would still be better off as a power forward, but can't shoot, and, and Wiseman, who is Wiseman. I mean, Duran is just such a, a tremendously better option than the two of them. Now, if we can find... Well, this, that would sound kind of grotesque, but this way. If you put Isaiah Stewart in the body of uh, James Wiseman, then you would have had no needs for Duran, period, because that's like an all-defensive player who can probably shoot, you know, if he's uh, Isaiah Stewart, can probably shoot the ball and vertically space the floor and so on and so forth. And that's a fantastic player. Unfortunately, Isaiah Stewart is undersized and unathletic. So Jalen Duran, if we're just speaking relatively how he contributes to winning, the impact he has in winning for this team, it would be because he is drastically, drastically better option at starting center than any of the other guys. In terms of how he contributes on an absolute level, uh, highway athletic, runs the floor well, vertically spaces the floor well, moves well around the floor in general, uh, has great length, you know, uses it to his advantage. You know, he's still really getting there in, in terms of, you know, just making some adjustments as an interior defender, but he's got very high defensive upside, which is not constrained by the lack of athleticism or a lack of strength, for example, like Marvin Bagley, for example, who gets pushed around. Or if you think back to Thon Maker, who <laughs> that would be, Possibly be a center, at least, and uh, needless to say, he got pushed around, though he ended up playing a lot more power forward. I think the Bucks played him at backup center a fair amount, if I remember correctly. He's an extreme example. So, Duran, also very strong. Um, you know, some guys are going to be able to push him around anyway, like the Embiid's and the Jokic's of the league, but they can basically push around everybody but each other, and maybe Jonas Valanciunas. Um, I'm just thinking back to, uh, I don't know if any of you remember, it was Nikola Pekovic, who played for the Timberwolves. <laughs> I think it was Shaq. Um, I think I heard... Um, it was either Greg Kels or George Blaha say this, that Shaq said that everybody whose, whose name ended in Vich was able to shoot the ball that he ever knew. Uh, Nikola Pekovic was not able to shoot the ball, but he was one of the uh, strongest, just most giant players in the history of the NBA. 
uh, unfortunately played for a bad team and uh, his body was really unable to handle the, uh, you know, the size, sheer size he was carrying around and in, in the rigors of NBA action. Uh, anyway, so Jalen Duran's super strong as well, has shown touch as a passer. That's great. Has, has shown a lot of acuity in the pick and roll, has shown chemistry with Cade Cunningham and uh, his, is just a, a very, very good finisher. So he brings a lot of assets and, and a pretty high ceiling. I think that, you know, the ceiling for a guy who can't really create for himself all that much offensively uh, gets kind of curtailed at below the real star, real superstar uh, tier of centers. But, you know, that's that's okay. I mean, he can he can still be a very good center, even if he's not able to create for himself. Though he has shown some surprising acuity as a handler. Like, not, he's not really going to be driving on you, you know, into, driving into players and, and scoring through contact there. But if you give him the space, he can put the ball on the floor and curl around and, and score uncontested. So he just does a lot of things pretty well, and I think he could uh, he could do a significant number of things very well, and uh, and that he's got you know every capability of, of really being an impact center in the league, you know uh, even if he's not at the top tier of centers, still in in the very very good tier of centers. Uh, moving on, talk about the team's power forwards. Well, this is a loaded question because uh, I think we all know that this team is extremely weak at power forward at the moment. You've got Isaiah Stewart who I've spoken about, you know, at length about how I, I just don't think he's he's very fit to play at the position outside of spot minutes into, into good matchups. And then your other power forward on the roster is Boyan Bogdanovich, who is a very capable scorer, 34 years old, unlikely to really be, you know, maybe, you know, maybe the Pistons are surprise everybody here in a contending next year. Um, but, you know, unless they're contending soon, he's, I don't think he's going to, you know, even assuming they, I think they'll keep him next year. But even assuming he sticks around next year, who knows if he'll be on the team the year after that. And I think that time will hurt him less than it hurts other players just because he is not anywhere near as dependent upon his athleticism as as many players in the NBA. But nonetheless, I mean, uh, this is like if if we want to tie, you know, go back briefly to to Weaver's good moves, Boyan was, was a, you know, it was a good get. But he's he's more of a player for the now to sort of help in the now and at a point where the Pistons aren't really competing. Uh, then he is a guy who is is really going to be around to help in the future when hopefully the Pistons are competing. And if Boyan were five years younger, you know, there's no way he goes for that package. If you're even three years younger, probably no reason, no way he goes for that package. And finally, does it uh, make any sense for the Pistons to try to move on from Killian Hayes, James Wiseman, or Marvin Bagley? So uh, when it comes to Killian well, number one, it comes to all three guys. They they've all got negative trade value. Um, I mean, you don't you won't have to pay to get off of Wiseman or to get off of Killian because they're expiring deals. Uh, you probably would have to pay off pay to get off of, of Bagley, who, notwithstanding his you know, which is kind of surprising degree of improvement on defense, um, and him you know putting up decent counting stats as a scorer, still is a minus defender and still is basically. I don't want to, I don't know if glorified traditional center on offense is, is unfair, but he still can't shoot. He can space the floor to a meaningless degree as uh you know, as a mid range shooter. But you know, and that's good in a pinch if he can make it. I haven't checked his stats. But on the whole, he's just still not a very good rotation player. And cap space is cap space. At twelve and a half million dollars is twelve and a half million dollars. And I don't think this team is in, in position to be attaching draft stock to, to dump guys at this point. You know, unless they're getting somebody good in return. I think the best you could get for any of the three of them is, you know, if you were to attach a second round pick as another reclamation project of a comparable salary. And I think that this team at this point, you know, being that it is trying to improve, 
and you know being that it is trying to give minutes to a number of players this year you know an, an ever larger number of players that have been gotten on the draft uh, and then the you know the the useful veterans on the team I, I don't think this team really is all that going to be all that interested in reclamation projects at this stage you know even if troy weaver weren't zero for six already and this this is this ties back into you know needing to make one of those you know needing to make those high tier moves needing to find those diamonds in the rough needing to make those peripheral moves that are really going to improve the team troy weaver between uh the two jacksons josh and frank uh dennis smith jr hamadou diallo marvin bagley and james wiseman is zero of six unless you think that Bagley is going to succeed. Zero of six in reclamation projects. Two of them you didn't have to pay for, Frank and Josh. Um, Dennis Smith Jr. got traded, if I recall correctly, for a pretty decent second round pick. Excuse me, you know, he got traded with a decent second round pick in exchange for Derek Rose, who did have value on the trade market. So whether or not you think that that was a worthwhile package, that's uh, that's up to interpretation. And then. You know, when you take into account the uh, the five second round picks that the Pistons could have gotten in exchange for Wiseman, I think three of those, and I checked in, it's uh, I believe it would be three rather than four of those that would have been unprotected. One of them got unprotected um, when it went to the Trailblazers and the when the when the Warriors rooted, I believe, two of those second round picks to to Portland and Kevin Knox to get back uh, Gary Payton the second uh, Portland or that that you know removed protections on that pick because it was going back to Portland. I believe, or maybe it was the Hawks who removed that protection. I can't remember. Uh, whatever the case, uh, if you take all of those picks into account, um, Weaver has traded eight of them for, or he traded eight of them for Bagley, Diallo, and M. Wiseman. The one of the picks that was traded to, uh, that was traded in the Bagley deal was, was fairly weak. It was uh, the worst, I think in 2023, actually, or maybe 2024, the worst of Cleveland and Golden State, which was you know likely to be a little pick. So uh, whatever the event. I just don't think that this team is probably that the front office is feeling too hot about trying to give minutes to a reclamation project. If you want to add in Kevin Knox last season, then it's kind of 0 for 7. Knox was not all bad for the Pistons. He had a decent, he had a, you know, decent stretch as just a, a three in transition guy. Um, but I wouldn't call him a success other. So uh, that will be it, folks, for today's episode. As always, I want to thank you all for listening. We'll catch you in next week's episode.